We didn't lie to you, folks. We told you we had living, breathing monstrosities. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Film and Water Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast family of podcasts. That's a little weird podcast there a lot of times in the, in the 30 seconds. I am your host, Rob Kelly, and joining me again this week for two episodes in a row, that's something new for the show, is from Court Industries, Tim Wallace. Tim, thanks for coming back. Absolutely. Thank, thank you for accepting me. <laughs> one of us, one of us. Uh, yes, as uh, as you can see from your descriptions of this episode, we are going to be covering, for this episode, the 1932 Todd Browning horror film? Is it horror? I guess it sort of is. I, I guess so, yeah. F- yeah, Freaks, uh, the legendary Freaks. Um, the reason I picked this film to talk about, other than the fact that Halloween is coming up and it feels sort of appropriate, is uh, this actually... Um, is the subject of another podcast that I really enjoy called The Canon, which is features two hosts, Devin Faraci and Amy Nicholson, and they pick a film every week and they sort of talk about it and then they allow listeners to vote to whether it becomes part of the canon, quote-unquote, the canon of, you know, great films. And uh, I love that show, and uh, when they did Freaks, I realized that I had seen the movie once about 25 years ago, and it didn't leave a whole huge impression on me. I think I remember I just remember thinking it was just really weird. I didn't remember a lot from it, so I decided to watch it again around one in the morning, which I don't recommend. Or maybe maybe that actually is a good idea to watch it at one in the morning. So I watched Freaks again and really was struck by it. Uh, it, it. It left quite an impression on me the way it didn't when I first saw it. So I thought it would be kind of fun to talk about it again. And Tim was gracious enough to, to want to join me. Um, the plot so much as it, as you can really call the plot, is basically it's about a conniving trapeze artist named Cleopatra who seduces and marries sideso midget Hans after learning of his large inheritance. Cleopatra conspires with circus strongman Hercules to kill Hans and inherit his wealth. Um, she does this by slowly uh, trying to poison him 
and eventually the other quote-unquote freaks of the sideshow learn of this and extract their revenge on Cleopatra and Hercules. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, that's basically the plot of the film. But uh, I think, Tim, you would agree with me that that's not really what the movie's about. No, no, no. There's a, there's a, there's a lot of things going on in this movie. I I tried to uh, a friend of mine when I told him I was going to record with you said he had never seen it and uh, I kind of gave him a, a similar breakdown the way you just did and then sort of had the light bulb moment where I said you know it it's like a Twilight Zone episode before the Twilight Zone <laughs> yes way way before the Twilight Zone <laughs> yeah I mean one of the things I was struck by uh, in watching it again was that the director Todd Browning who if any of you don't know directed Dracula of course and uh, the the he mostly did silence the only the last couple films of his mm-hmm. career were were uh, talkies and I think by anybody who's seen Dracula you can tell he wasn't terribly comfortable with talkies um, a lot of the dialogue in freaks is unintelligible I think part of it is the the technology of the time and also the fact that uh, two of the main characters which are the uh, Hans, the aforementioned dwarf, and his friend Frida, who was interested in him. She's also a dwarf. They have these very thick German accents. So between the you know sort of crudeness of the sound recording and their thick accents, to me, a lot of this film is just impossible to understand. Um, that doesn't matter too much uh, because again, what what you're watching is like a fever dream, and. One of the things that, that Todd Browning does in this in, in Freaks is that there is no character that is not one of the freaks, essentially. You know, there is no character that is sort of amazed at this world, and therefore the audience doesn't have an entrance to this world. Like, Todd Browning just drops you in the middle of the sideshow and sort of just follows these people around from, you know, scene to scene. And you have to kind of just sort of orient yourself uh, without having anybody do it for you. Like he, you really feel like Todd Browning was very comfortable in this situation. Right, right. I think I think the closest you get to that that outsider slash audience perspective is right near the beginning, um, where the owner of the the land that the the circus or carnival has set up on is being led there by another man, right? Who's who's absolutely disturbed that there are these. These hideous monsters swimming in the pond and and cavorting through the through the woods, but then the actual property owner's like, oh yeah, no problem. Yeah, <laughs> stay, stay as long as you want. Like, yeah, it's a woman and I think three. I think it's three. Uh, what I guess is they're called pinheads. Yes, it's not appropriate nowadays, but they were real, real pinheads. Uh, these are real, and that's one of the first thing when you first see them. Uh, one of them uh, ended up becoming sort of famous, and that became uh, she, she, he was the uh, model for uh, Bill Griffith Zippy the Pinhead. But mm-hmm. you you meet them, and you're like, wow, these are real people. This is this is not makeup. This is not somebody with a prosthetic. These are real, real, real pinheads. And it it's you really, and sometimes you really kind of can't believe you're watching it. <laughs> I don't, I don't know I don't know what it means about me personally. But I, I think I've, I think I felt very much like Browning, like I, I was okay with it. Like it, it didn't, it didn't shock me. It didn't put me off. I, I actually found myself off and on throughout the movie feeling very, uh, very sympathetic, very, very, you know, 
especially when uh, when Cleopatra and Hercules, the strong man, start plotting their uh, their plan, um, feeling very you know no that's not right you you leave Hans alone. Yeah, I mean the, the freaks do seem you know they're a nice family. They all sort of support one another, and it, yeah, you're right. It's it's only the Cleopatra and Hercules are the conniving ones. I mean, right. there's a whole group here. There's a there's a bearded lady. Uh, so there are the aforementioned pinheads. There are uh, there's Daisy and Violet, real Siamese twins, mm-hmm. and uh, they each have their own boyfriends. Uh, uh. There's there's uh, Johnny Eck, the human torso, who is just a uh, he's just a head, arms, and a torso. Uh, there's the human centipede guy, which is unbelievable. Uh, there's a woman with a with a trained seal. There's some sort of weird thing going on. There's a hum, there's a human skeleton. <laughs> there's an armless girl who can uh, light a match and feed herself with her feet. Uh, the the I mean, bird woman. The bird woman. Yeah, I mean, and part of the reason I think you're right is that you that Todd Browning does feel so comfortable is because apparently he partly grew up in a circus. Yeah. Um, I watched it on a uh, on a Turner Classic DVD, and uh, that actually had some bonus material, like a, a documentary about uh, freaks in the cinema. And it, it's I wouldn't so much call it a making of, but it profiles each of each of the people involved: Browning, um, uh, Harry Earls, the the main dwarf uh, right. Hans, um, Johnny Eck, it, and it goes through each one and gives a little bit of their backstory, uh, gives a little bit of their their character. Um, and, uh, yeah, there, there was some, uh, some crazy lives that these people led and, uh, <laughs> yeah, and this, this was made, uh, as I mentioned in 1932, which means it was a, as they call it pre-code horror, which is before, uh, you know, the, they decided to, the Hayes code came in and decided to start saying, Hey, you can't do some of this stuff. So, I mean, this film was made on the strength of Dracula's success, is that Todd Browning was a, an immensely successful filmmaker. He was pretty much uh, the Martin Scorsese to uh, Lon Chaney's uh, Leonardo DiCaprio slash Robert De Niro. And uh, <laughs> Dracula, <laughs> Dracula, I wonder if any of them would be complimented by that comparison. Um, and Dracula was such a huge hit that Todd Browning was allowed to pretty much make whatever he wanted. And, and, you know, this movie is made by MGM. This is a major studio release. Yeah. And, um, the, the, you know, the head of the studio at the time was really doubtful about it. Apparently the freaks, you know, showed up at the commissary at MGM <laughs> and really sort of disgusted a lot of people. There's a, there's a, a story I read about it, which is who knows if it's apocryphal, about the um, F. Scott Fitzgerald, who was yes. on the lot at the time, saw the bearded lady. And was so horrified that he walked out and didn't come back, you know. Uh, and, and apparently there are stories that some of the freaks really started acting like prima donnas once because they all thought they were going to be movie stars. I yeah, mean, I think I think uh, I think Johnny Eck, like uh, in an interview later in his life, had said that uh, several of them started to go Hollywood and uh, <laughs> and would w- walk around wearing sunglasses and <laughs> demand special treatment around the set and. When you, I mean, I'm reading, I'm reading that, and I'm like, wow, like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to say it in a in a cruel way, but I, I'm not sure some of them would have had the mental capacity to to suddenly take on that that those airs, yeah. That, but uh, you know, who knows? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, this film does sort of straddle the line between it being, you know, like a, a plea for tolerance and also a little exploitative. Yes, and as absolutely. I, as, as you watch it, I mean, it's a very short film. It's only 64 minutes, and there's a reason for that, which we'll get into shortly. Uh, I, it, to me, it kind of went back and forth, and there were times where I did feel like these people were being exploited. You know, I was like, all right, this really is just sort of we're here to gawk at these people. But then, then it sort of toggles back, and you're like, well, no. These, I mean, there's a the, the most famous scene probably in the movie before the ending is when they have sort of a wedding party for Cleopatra and Hans, and uh, they start uh, Johnny uh, the um, uh, one of the one of the dwarfs starts sort of d- dancing on the table, and then some of the other pinheads start dancing, and they all are drinking from this goblet, and that's when they start singing the Google Gobble. Yes, one of us thing, which became part of the culture, the Google Gobble thing, uh, thanks to the Ramones and, and some other people. <laughs> um, but like they pass the, this giant goblet onto Cleopatra to drink from, and she recoils at it, like she she's had it, like she drops her facade about this whole plot, and she screams at them and calls them freaks, and you you feel really sorry for them, you know, they look hurt. And even though, in a lot of ways, it's it's a horrific scene, and you could sort of understand from her point of view, in the end, you really are like, well, again, they're not bad people. They're weird, but they're not bad. She's the bad one. Right, right. I mean, um, what what is it? Uh, the the Barker at the very beginning makes a makes a reference to uh, that they are a family, and that if to slight one is to slight all of them. And that that moment where they're trying to ex- literally, uh, as they're chanting, they're trying to accept her. They're trying to to welcome her in now that she's going to marry Hans, and she turns on them. And it it is that ultimate slap in the face that that they're the outsiders, but they're trying to trying to bring her into their crowd, and she just like like a snap just turns on them and it, it it is it's it's sad and you can see that that pained look on a few of their faces yeah yeah um the the reason this film is even considered i guess a horror film because i mean really looking at people with deformities is not inherently horrific uh it's really more of a, like if you look at it look it up on imdb it's also as a drama slash horror um, the real reason this is considered a horror film at all is the final sequence. And that is when all the freaks band together and get their revenge on Cleopatra and Her- Hercules, the strong man, who it was sort of funny the way time changed. Like, that guy, he's just a, he's just a tall guy. <laughs> right. He's really not particularly muscular, <laughs> but somehow he's Hercules. Um, but they get their revenge on him. And that scene, the, 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 the extended final scene, is truly horrific. Uh, in that they do become sort of monsters. They all start slithering in the mud, yes. chasing after Cleopatra, and it is genuinely terrifying. And there's, you know, I I don't particular. I don't know about you, Tim. I don't know. Do you think Dracula is a? Um, do you think Dracula is a good movie? It's a historic movie. Not anybody can doubt that. But do you think it's actually a good movie? I no. Right. I I I, I love it. I love it because it, it was the first horror right. movie I ever saw. I, I wow. begged my mom, I begged my mom at like five or six years old to, to let me stay up till eleven thirty midnight on on a Saturday to watch the local horror host run Dracula. And I remember, I remember that first time 
like as a kid, not really taking in everything I was seeing, just knowing that it was a vampire and being, being scared. And then going back and watching it as I grew up and going, it's, it's really kind of, uh, kind of stilted and, oh, yeah. and, and slow. And it, it, I mean, it, it's what almost literally shot for shot the, the stage play. Yeah. It's, it's, I I have not seen any of uh, Todd Browning's silent films. I've only seen three films of his. I've seen Dracula, I've seen Freaks, and I've seen Mark of the Vampire. And uh, you know, Dracula, I just do not think is a very good movie. It it features a defining performance, obviously. Um, yes. You know, the the vampire performance of all time. But I mean, there's there's scenes of where there's like um, pieces of cardboard left on stage. <laughs> I mean, I did really, and every everybody just sort of walks on stage like it's a play, and then walks off. The camera doesn't move at all. I mean, I watched Dracula, and when I was able to watch it, like you, I saw it as a kid, and I loved it because it's Dracula. But later on, it's an adult. I'm like, this is a really ineptly directed movie. And I, I just started really thinking Todd Browning was not particularly good. And he just sort of got lucky that he was the guy pointing the camera at a movie that became historic. That said, um, the, this final sequence of Freaks is is terrifying and really intense. And so to me, that says, okay, well, Todd Browning obviously had a lot more going on than, than I give him credit for because that, that the whole final sequence of them and it's, it, the rain is pouring down. And like I said, they're all slithering through the mud. And all of a sudden these people who, while they look odd, have been fairly benign to this point, all of a sudden take a really scary turn. And that makes me say, okay, then again, you know, Browning could pull it off when he wanted to. And, um, apparently, the original ending uh, was so terrifying and so violent. Um, Hercules, uh, the strong man, uh, again, the, this this ending has been lost to the ages. But apparently, Hercules gets castrated um, yeah. by the freaks, uh, which leads to him singing falsetto in the uh, in another scene in the movie. And they get their revenge on Cleopatra, and you you do see what. What revenge they get on Cleopatra? I'm not going to say. For in case anybody who hasn't seen the movie, you probably shouldn't even be listening to this. But in case you, in case you haven't, um, I won't tell you what happens because the reveal of what Cleopatra becomes after the freaks get to her is really one of the great shock moments in all of cinema. When I first, when I first saw it, I was like, "That was one of those like, is that real? No, that's fake. Is it? Yeah, yeah, that, that, yeah, no, yeah, it's fake. And any movie that can." even catch me for two seconds i'm like that's a really good movie because i really that's really terrifying the, um i had uh, jumping back to browning um i'd seen the same ones you had I've, I've seen dracula i've seen freaks i've seen um mark of the vampire i saw the um the restored sort of um version of london after midnight oh really um oh, there actually was lost was a, to the ages no, there was a uh, there was a Turner Classic Lon Chaney uh, DVD set that came out. I don't know how long ago now. Um, that had a few of the Lon Chaney silence on it, and it had a. It's more of a recreation. They've they've taken what what very little footage they were able to find, and then filled it in with um, with stills and like lobby card images to try to continue that story. Okay. Uh, to try to recreate what, what you would have seen, but you end up with, you know, sequences where it's literally just a, a still image with the music playing and then a title card and then a still image. And then, um, but between, between that and Mark of the vampire, 
I, I would have, prior to seeing Freaks, thought, okay, Mark of the Vampire, that's that's great. That's I love Mark of the Vampire. That's it's a great, Bell. really fun movie. Um, London After Midnight, I can't really judge based on that. But um, Browning had also done the, um, the Unholy Three. Right. With uh, with Lon Chaney and with Harry Earls. Um, who oh, plays I didn't Hans. Know. oh, I didn't know he was in that. Ha- Harry Earls, who plays Hans in this, in uh, in the Unholy Three, plays a, a thief who masquerades as a baby. <laughs> and Lon, Ch- Lon Chaney ends up being like the the old woman who takes care of the baby, and that's how they they make their way through to to pull off their jobs. Um, the reason when I was doing a little bit of research, apparently the reason Freaks got made. Was because after filming the Unholy Three, Harry Earls came to um, Browning and said, "I've got this story that that I found called Spurs, um, and it's got a really great role for me, and I think it's something you and Lon would like to do too." <laughs> and he's creating and his own material. He he was, and uh, apparently though the the Spurs story from uh, from what I had heard ended up being a lot darker than this. Wow. Which when you when you get to that ending of Freaks, it's kind of hard to imagine it getting darker. Yeah. But uh, Cheney was apparently attached up um, up until he died, and that that ending, the that we don't want to give away the big reveal for, mm-hmm. um, would have been Cheney. In fact, he had designed that look, wow. so it kind of it, it would have had to have switched characters, I guess. Hmm. But. Uh, but yeah, that look was was created by Cheney, um, and that's even confirmed in the documentary I saw that uh, the suit is something that he had he had designed prior to his death and would have worn. Jeez, wow, yeah, that's uh, really that's that's amazing. I didn't know yeah. any of that. That's really amazing. Yeah, I mean, th- when this film was released, uh, it was not taken well, to say the least. Uh, not, a, not at all. Here's one of the reviews. There is no excuse for this picture. It took a weak mind to produce it, and it takes a strong stomach to look at it. <laughs> the, it would take uh, Batman and Robin to see reviews like that to come out again. Yeah, the, the film was pretty much an utter disaster. Apparently, MGM tried to play it out as they put it in the sticks. Uh, to to build word of mouth, and it just didn't get anywhere. And then they finally did play it in the cities, and people just revolted. One woman sued MGM, claiming she had a miscarriage because of the movie. Uh, <laughs> so that's a bad review. And so they ended up lopping uh, a lot, almost a half hour out of this movie, right. including a good chunk of the more extreme elements of the ending. They released it at 64 minutes, and that ending, again, apparently was just tossed tossed in a pile somewhere with the uh, final scene from Magnificent Ambersons or something. And it's, it's never been seen again, the, uh, the spider pit sequence from King Kong. And it's, it's never been seen again. So this film is, is definitely compromised. And um, a lot of the stories is that it ruined Todd Browning's career and he never worked again, which isn't really true because I said he, he made uh, Mark of the Vampire after this. And Mark of the Vampire right. is a very good movie. And he made a couple others after this, but it really did kind of – you know, he didn't work a whole lot after that, but apparently he was also an alcoholic and had lots of other problems. So I don't right. think you can necessarily pin it on freaks. But it, the the movie was an utter disaster. It was banned apparently in several countries. It got picked up by some exploitative guy. I forget his name, but somebody who would buy movies that were cast off and and 
you know, sort of pitch them as a, you know, like Z grade level, you know, new, along with nudie films and stuff. And it was pretty much unavailable until the sixties. And then it got re-released and it became sort of the darling of the counterculture. Uh, and then its reputation has grown over time. And now as, as, as you just mentioned, Tim, it's shown on Turner classic movies. for Pete's right. sakes. <laughs> I mean, it's clearly its reputation has been, has been restored. Yeah. It, it, T- Turner's Turner is the whole reason I've I saw it originally. I I had heard of it. It's something I had in reading about old horror films, which is something you know from that first view of Dracula. I've I've loved the old black and white horror films, and I've read up as much as I could. And I've always seen you know if you see a reference to Dracula, there's a reference to Browning. Then there's usually some little footnote about freaks, and it was probably not until maybe maybe 10, 15 years ago that I actually finally saw freaks for the first time. And I, I've, I'd almost have made it a, an annual viewing. If I, really? if I happen, if I happen to catch it, I, I think Turner classic runs it at least once or twice a year. And I, if I catch that it's coming on, I'll usually, you know, try to try to watch it or record it and, and, and sit down. Although now I did just, recently purchased the dvd so now i can watch it anytime i want <laughs> <laughs> i mean i had to admit when i was watching it i found all the scenes with cleopatra and hercules as they're plotting to be horribly dull like it just uh, talky 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 and i right. just didn't care i you know i kind of kind of get like get, get, going back to the freaks you know like right. I, you know, I wanted to, there's a scene of the the guy the human centipede guy who he is just a head and a little sort of not even a torso, really. He's sort of just a like a neck and a part of his body, and you see him light a match and and light a cigarette with just his mouth, which is uh, yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> even more unbelievable. Apparently, that was cut, and the full sequence actually had him roll the cigarette yeah, himself. That just defies imagination. <laughs> I don't know how long could it take. How many years did it take you to learn that? Yeah, it, it really is. It is just um, as I mentioned in the, this other podcast, the canon. You know, you vote. People go to the forum and they vote whether it belongs in the canon. And I, I was sort of mixed as I was watching it. I was kind of weighing it back. Going, Does this really belong in a list of the great films? But after I finished it, I was like, this movie really is like no other movie ever made. Right. It, it just it really does stand alone, and so I ended up voting for it yes because I just said it just is unlike anything anybody's ever seen, and uh, you know I can't picture myself watching it every year. I, I just feel like it's just so kind of <laughs> sort of unpleasant and grimy and nasty that, but it, but it, it does. I did come away with it like wow, that really was a really completely unique cinematic experience, and especially and it's sixty four minutes. I just go, you know. Right. It's not a lot of, you know, it's not asking a lot of you of your time to watch 64 minutes. So, do you have a particular like favorite scene? I mean, most of everybody's, I guess, is the, is the end. But do you have a particular part that you love more than anything else? I, I, I'll, I'll tell you my favorite scene, and it it will not make any sense unless I unless I set up the context. So I think one of the reasons why I I watch it and as much as I do. Uh, and this may or may not change your opinion of me. Um, <laughs> at, at one point in college, I I literally almost ran away to join the circus. <laughs> I I actually still have the envelope that they mailed me with my application and all of the information. Wow! Um, 
there was a, a small touring circus, the, the Royal Liechtenstein One Ring Circus that came through my college campus. One and, uh, Ring. That's so sad. And up, up prior to that, I had actually I had taken clown classes. I had taken magic classes. Oh, my God. Um, this it, is unbelievable. In high school, I was in the juggling club. I, I actually taught myself after seeing it part of the human blockhead routine. Where you where you hammer the nail up your nose? Oh my goodness! Um, and I had I had purchased a book to try to teach myself fire eating, and <laughs> I never I never got very far with that. Um, but but if you but if you now have that image, my actual favorite scene is is um, Wallace Ford as Frozo the clown when he's when he's trying to uh, to warm up the uh, the the seal trainer girl. And he's got the giant clown outfit on, and he's trying to get her to whack him with the mallet. And then his head disappears inside of the, this giant suit. <laughs> that is the funniest thing for me. <laughs> it, is, it is this perfect, classic clown moment, and I, I love that scene. That, that was not the answer I expected, Tim. And you are going to have to come on the show a lot more because we're going to have to get further into that. We might have to do a whole series of circus-related movies just I'll, to just to have more it. stories. Okay, that is – wow. That's unbelievable. No yep. wonder you jumped at the chance to when I put the word out about this movie. So, yes. Uh, yeah, it, it is – it really is, like I said, it's, it's, it's a one-of-a-kind cinematic experience. So – Give it a shot. I would. I would definitely recommend it. I'm sure you would recommend it to anybody, right? To, to watch I, it. I definitely would. And and I think one of the things that you you'll realize, and and we touched on it earlier, is that even if you've never seen this before, it it's in it's in the culture. It's it's in the pop culture. The the Ramones song Pinhead is inspired by the movie and has the Gabba Gabba We Accept You line. And uh, I, I shared a video with you the other night. Uh, Ricardo Autobahn's Golden Age of Video, oh, right, where right. where it's it's all of these different movie lines synced up to a, a, a pretty decent beat, and that has the "We accept her, one of us" repeated over and over again, almost as the chorus of the uh, that and, and Ghostbusters become sort of the chorus or the <laughs> refrain. So, I mean, it's it's everywhere. Schlitzy, the the pinhead, like like you said, is was the uh, Zippy the pinhead in. Uh, the inspiration for Zippy the Pinhead. So right. even if even if you've never seen this, you've seen things that have been influenced by it. Yeah, Tom Waits wrote a song about Johnny Eck called Tabletop Joe. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, and which doesn't surprise me at all that like Tom Waits loves this movie. That that's that's completely not a shock. So <laughs> uh, yeah, it really is. It's it's uh, it's it's something else. This movie, Todd Browning's Freak. So uh, yeah, give it a shot. And it, it, and definitely for like a Halloween thing, it's it's yeah. probably a, a good uh, a good a good pick. So it's available on uh, Amazon and iTunes, I believe. So you can you can find it around. It's it's easy to get. So check it out, everybody. Um, check I guess that's going to wrap this up for Freaks, right? Do we have anything else we want to talk about about this movie before we sign off? I, I, I do feel obligated to throw one more little thing in there. Go right ahead. And it's, it's a Johnny Eck, the half boy. Right. Um, born and raised and retired to Baltimore. Which that's is, right. Which is my hometown. Um, <laughs> and a, apparently up until his, well, up until shortly before his death. He had a sad, um, sad end to his life, unfortunately. Yeah, but prior to that, he was he was happy to entertain fans that, that came by would sit out on the front stoop and, and greet people as they came, as they walked by. And, uh, 
um, seemed like a really nice, genuine guy, retired and became a a screen painter, which is sort of a a Baltimore tradition where you paint the screen for your window. Um, But yeah, then what his house was broken into, him and his brother were were beaten up, and after that, he sort of became a recluse. So yeah, that made me sad because I said he's, he he seemed like somebody that did sort of enjoy his life and enjoyed the, the, the sort of nominal fame that he had. But you know, Every, everything everything I had I had looked at and read the the documentary and articles all said that that of all the freaks that that appeared in this movie, he was the one that appeared uh, apparently even up until his death. Um, talked about how great this experience was, how much he loved it, and uh, had even at one point hoped to work with Browning to make a, a sequel to Freaks that would have focused on him. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, it, would have been, it would have been the Empire Strikes Back of the Freaks trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I do, I, I do have to you know acknowledge the hometown boy there. Very good, very good. Well, uh, Tim, thank you once again for, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Where can people, uh, for, for, well, before we talk about the next movie we're going to cover, which is clearly going to be the greatest show ever told, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, where can people find you on the interwebs? Uh, they can find me at uh, Cord Industries, uh, cordindustries.blogspot.com, my Blue Beetle page. I'm also a contributor at the Legion of Super Bloggers. Um, and I have uh, now recorded two appearances on Ryan Daly's uh, Secret Origins podcast. Yeah, that shows like flypaper. You just can't get away from it. You yeah, know? Exactly. Once, once you're in there, you're, <laughs> you're in. So uh, anyway, yeah, Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show. If anybody wants to shoot an email to this, to, to the show uh, here, it's firewaterpodcast.net. And again, Tim, thanks for, for doing the show twice in a row now. I really appreciate it. Uh, I really did want to talk about freaks, and like when I first put it out there, I was like, "Is anybody going to respond to this?" And then you wrote me like three <laughs> seconds later, "Yeah, I want to talk about it." I was like, yes, okay, I love this right. movie. I love that enthusiasm. So, uh, again, thanks so much for doing the show. Certainly, absolutely, anytime. Uh, awesome. So, uh, and everybody, thanks so much for listening. Hope you come back for the next episode. Until then, that's a wrap.